WDIY presents a new season of Teen Connect with rotating new host, Sehant Kandilwal. Good evening and welcome to Teen Connect on WDIY 88.1 FM. I'm your host, Sehant Kandilwal. And today I'd like to focus this segment on a world-class facility right here in the Lehigh Valley that not many people know about. Track cycling is a huge part of the Lehigh Valley culture that is really slept on as people come from all over the world to compete at our local velodrome. This is why I think it is really important to get a full idea of the significance of the velodrome. And so, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first guest, Joan Hanscom, who is the Executive Director of Valley Preferred Cycling Center. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Joan. Hi, Sid. It's a pleasure to be here. So just to start off, could you introduce yourself a little bit about your background and generally what career decisions led you to making your job in this general cycling field? Oh, I love that you asked it that way because it was a bizarre career decision. So I was working for AOL Time Warner way back when, when they were a thing in the internet world. And it wasn't a terribly happy work environment. I loved my job when I worked for AOL, but then they merged with Time Warner and it got a little bit weird. And so I thought to myself, gosh, what do I love? And I love bike racing. So I sent a random email to the folks who ran what was back then the Wachovia Cycling Series, which is a huge huge cycling event, you know, downtown Philly, Lancaster, Trenton PA. It was it was like the biggest cycling event in America at the time. And I just randomly said, you should hire me. And lo and behold, they sent me back an email that said, come on up for an interview. And thus, my career in professional bike racing was born out of just this random stab in the dark, um, sort of pursuing what I love to do. Uh, I was an avid racer at the time and thought, why not? And so they hired me and I worked for them for a number of years. And then I spun off into my own business. And our first big client was the U.S. Grand Prix of Cyclocross, which was a national cyclocross series sort of at the forefront of the explosion of cyclocross racing here in the U.S. And we grew it to be something pretty tremendous. And that led to us bringing the world championships to the U.S. for cyclocross, which was the first time that event had ever run outside of Europe. So we made some history with that event. And then I decided it was time to take a little breather from bike racing because bike racing can be exhausting. And I work, went to work for a brand, a German brand called Abus. They do bike locks and bike helmets and had a lovely time uh, working for Abus. But got the bug to go back to bike racing. And so I went to USA Cycling and worked for them for three years, at which I really missed bike racing because my job there was not in the trenches at races. And the opportunity presented itself at the velodrome. And I thought, this is a world-class facility. I think I can do good work there. Let me throw my hat into the ring. And lo and behold, I ended up in Drexertown. So yeah, I've just always chased this sort of love of bike racing. Wow, that is really cool. Now, actually, after talking to many of my peers and several other people, I have come to the conclusion that there are a decent number of people who actually have no clue what the velodrome is. So for those of our listeners who don't currently know what it is, could you tell us what the velodrome is and what goes on there? Sure. So we're coming right off an Olympic cycle. So this is a great time to talk about it because one of the biggest events in cycling at the Olympic Games is track cycling. It's velodrome racing. So velodrome is a track built for bicycle racing. And it's a very American sport in its origin, right? So there's an event in the Olympics called the Madison. The Madison got its roots at Madison Square Garden in New York. So track racing is an essentially American form of bike racing. It's sort of like NASCAR for bikes, right? You get on the track and you turn left uh, and you go fast. So it's (laughs) the bike racing equivalent of car racing, but it's human powered. And so that's velodrome racing in a nutshell it's people on bikes going up to speeds of over 50 miles an hour if you're talking about the most elites and it's all human powered wow that's really cool so how does vpcc valley preferred specifically contribute to the velodrome valley preferred is a local uh, hospital ppo insurance conglomerate um, sort of partnership with the lehigh valley health networks physicians group they are the naming rights sponsor 
of our facility. So the facilities had a number of different names in the past, Lehigh Valley Velodrome, it's now the Valley Preferred Cycling Center, because we have tremendous invaluable support from Valley Preferred and Lehigh Valley Health Network together. Um, And that's a partnership that really makes sense from their perspective, because it promotes wellness, it promotes healthy lifestyles, uh, it gets them into the community very customer facing but promoting something very healthy. And so it's a partnership that makes sense and has had legs. But think of them in their role as sort of what Citizens Bank Park would be, oh, correct? So it's a, it's a naming rights agreement with them, but they offer us you know, a tremendous amount of support in addition to financial support. So there's the Velodrome in the Lehigh Valley, which mm-hmm. seems like almost the middle of nowhere. How did such a world-class facility end up in Little Lehigh Valley? And what significance does it play to our valley? So it's a fascinating question because one of our other partners is the Rodale Institute. And the track was founded by Robert Rodale, who was also the founder, um, or whose family was the founder of the Rodale Institute. And Robert Rodale was an Olympian himself, and he was competing in the Olympics in shooting and saw the velodrome and became completely enamored of this idea of human-powered potential on the track and decided that he needed to bring a velodrome here to his home. So essentially, that's how it ended up here, was Robert Rodale was this visionary um, in things like publishing and organic farming and then bringing the velodrome to the Lehigh Valley. So Robert Rodale invested the money to create the velodrome and the fitness park across the street, and then he gave it to Lehigh Valley so that the citizens of the Lehigh Valley could have the benefit of this thing. Um, And velodromes are pretty rare in the U.S. I think now, at this point, we're down to 23 working velodromes in the U.S. And the most active one and the one that does absolutely the most programming is T-Town. Oh, wow. All thanks to Robert Rodale's vision. Yeah. So I think the one topic that everybody is expecting is COVID. So COVID this past year and a half has really taken a toll on businesses all over the spectrum, technology related, sports related, restaurants, etc. So how has COVID affected what happens at Valley Preferred Cycling Center? We're super lucky in that we are supported by a hospital network. So they gave us incredibly great advice, input on how to operate safely. And so going back to the summer of 2020, I think one of the things that the velodrome offers is community and it's almost like a clubhouse for the cycling community we established in 2020 ways to keep the track open safely so we had to get very creative we didn't we weren't able to operate the way we normally do so we pivoted and we we came up with other ways to bring community together so we couldn't have mass start racing Mm -hmm. so we did time trial racing uh we kept practices going but with limited structures, right? We put caps on the number of people who could be there. There were a lot of safety measures put into place. All of those safety measures were vetted through our partners with LVHN and the county of Lehigh. And that enabled us to stay open and enabled us to maintain that cadence of bringing our community together throughout 2020. And that really translated into the summer of 2021, which is just wrapping up for us now with not really having had a drop-off in our community, which was terrific. So we were able to go back to mass start racing this year, following the various protocols as they emerged, as they evolved. But uh, yeah, we've been able to keep the place open and running, be it scaled back through COVID, because we've had input from organizations like USA Cycling, like the UCI, which is our international body for sport. The World Health Organization has guidelines for participation in sport really most importantly, LVHN and Lehigh County enabled us to come up with ways to stay open safely. Now, moving on from COVID, I'd like to give you a small scenario. So if Valley Preferred Cycling Center was given an anonymous donation of $100,000, what would be the first change or changes brought? Well, $100,000 sadly doesn't go terribly far. But we would we would use it to to extend our reach into our community. So one of the things that we're currently looking at investing on is providing live streaming or the technology to provide consistent live streaming for our events. You've mentioned that we are an international destination, and I can't tell you the amount of demand we get from Australia and New Zealand, the UK, when we have the international athletes racing at T-Town for access to our events. So... In my first year working at the Velodrome, we redid the website, Important Technology Investment. Mm -hmm. This year, we invested in an app 
that is, again, an important technology evolution, how people consume content this year. We invested in a podcast. The next way to bring our product out to the market would be to invest in live streaming capacity and then ways to show this content to people more broadly around the world. So that would be the first place that we would spend money. If we had $160 million versus $100,000, we would look at potentially doing things like, you know, investing in an indoor facility. Um, But that's, you know, money on a scale that we don't have. Yeah. But $100,000 goes a long way to to improve your media infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the small things that make a big difference. So moving forward on the topic of funding. Mm -hmm. So at a glance at the picture of the velodrome, tons of sponsors are shown across the board surrounding the track. In what different ways do they contribute to VPCC? So some of that sponsorship Obviously, we touched on Valley Preferred as the naming rights sponsor and LVHN as a, as, a, as a big sponsor. And those are really cash-driven sponsorships with an enormous amount of other value attached to it, right? So again, they provide the med- medical expertise for us. They provide us with the uh, sports training wherewithal for our athletes during the off-season when we use their facilities indoors. So those partnerships are just really woven into the fabric of what we do. Similarly, we have a partnership with Air Products that's about 40 years old. And Air Products really helps us keep the price of our community programming low um, so that we're accessible for people, right? So we want to bring more people into the sport. With the support of Air Products, we have community programs for kids and adults that we're able to keep exceedingly low priced so that it price doesn't become a barrier to entry. Oh. Uh, and so funding from organizations like Air Products is absolutely invaluable to us. And then we have a number of local partners, Shearers Automotive. Again, they support our youth programming. It's really important that that funding come in because it does enable us to keep all of the community programming running at the level that it does. So that's this, we, we couldn't do what we do without our sponsors. I've noticed that a lot of people, either young kids, teens, and even adults, sometimes see the velodrome and are really interested, in fact, but have no idea how to get involved in it. So are there any programs for beginners to get involved at the velodrome? Absolutely. And they'll all be coming online in spring of 2022. Uh, We're about to shut down for a major resurfacing project, which is, again, where things like funding are huge to Mm -hmm. us. Uh, So we'll be shutting down in September, but when we come back in the spring... Our community programs will launch back up and we'll have programming such as Try the Track, which is a two-hour program designed to get the track curious up on bikes in a real introductory way, so no prior track experience needed. And then we've we've launched a program called Try the Track 2, which is if you liked it after the first little taste you got, you can come back and do Try the Track 2. And hopefully that's a transition to racing. We have Women's Wednesday, which is a really um, women-centric program designed to get women involved at the track. We have a expressed goal of reaching 50-50 in 50, which is 50% female participation by our 50th anniversary in 2025. Thus, we have a a specific set of women's programming. And then we have tons of youth programming. So there's Bicycle Racing League presented by Shearers. There's the Air Products Youth Programs. There are tons of ways for folks who are interested in learning to race bikes on the track or even just ride on the track to get involved. And I would encourage them all to check out our website around March of 2022, because that's when we'll be posting start dates for uh, all of our next round of programming. I've heard that there are even some Olympians who have come and originated from the Lehigh Valley. Is that true? Uh, That is true. So Kim Geist, for one, who is a multi-time world champion, started in the Air Products Youth Programs. Uh, she's and oh, wow. she's she's uh, she started as a I think at eleven maybe in those <laughs> programs and so yeah we've had a number of athletes come up through the program that have gone on to race at a very high level internationally and I think that that is because of the international riders that come here every summer there's there's a a the programming is taught by very knowledgeable coaches but then there's exposure to the high level of the sport and if you're exposed to the high level of sport it can inspire you to pursue it yourself if you're interested and so that's always our goal with athletes such as yourself that you're exposed to the sport at the very highest level and if that's for you you should chase it and if it's not maybe we're just creating a fan of the sport for life All right, listeners, we're going to take a short break. You've been listening to my conversation with Joan Hanscom, Executive Director of Valley Preferred Cycling Center. 
We'll be right back. Celtic Fair, a celebration of Celtic music and culture from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany, and Galicia to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar every Thursday from 7 to 9 here on WDIY. Welcome back to Teen Connect. I'm your host, Siddhanth Kandilwal, and we're talking with Joan Hanscom of Valley Preferred Cycling Center, more commonly known as the Velodrome. So I've heard that some of these world champions, after racing and finishing their racing career, have come back to coach some of these youth (laughs) programs like Air Products and the Bicycle Racing League. What do you think is their motivation to come back and coach these young kids? I think It's because those programs had such a profound impact on their life that they then want to turn around and give back. And I think that's one of the great things about the sport of cycling in general is that people are very passionate about it and they want to see it thrive. And so if you are an athlete like Kim Geist, who has won medals at the Pan Am Games. She's, you know, multi-time world champion, multi-time national champion, and you reach the end of your professional racing career, but that career pathway has shaped you as a person, you want to give back. And so what better way to give back than to to coach the next generation of athletes? I mean, speaking just for myself, this is why I I like working at the track mm-hmm. because I love bike racing. And I want to see it thrive. And I think that that's the motivation behind a lot of the other athletes who do the same. Elspeth Hewitt, for example, uh, started in the air products program and has held virtually every job at the track, perhaps except (laughs) mine. You know, she was an air products kid and then she was bicycle racing league. And now she's a national champion and she's racing in the UCI events. But she was also coaching in try the tracks and coaching in air products. And it's all because she loves it. And she feels an obligation to give back to the place that gave to her. Mm-hmm. So kind of bringing that passion that they found in the sport and trying to find that passion in some and of the And sharing kids. it forward, yeah. Yeah. So what is something interesting that happens at the velodrome that you think most people, like the general public, would not know about? I just think the inter- the level of international racing would shock people. And I've always said this about bike racing. Most people don't know anything about bike racing. It's a niche sport. Mm-hmm. And track racing is the nichiest of the niche. Yeah. And if you get somebody who's never seen it out to the track on a Friday night and they're up close, they're sitting on the on the deck or they're standing at the rail and they experience the speed of the athletes going by up close and personal, I think they'd be shocked by it. And I think that's what sells the sport. If you go and you sit and you watch it and you experience it and you see the color of, of the kits and you see the speed and the sound of the disc wheels, it's it's very visceral experience. And I think most people, until they have that visceral experience, can't fully appreciate what goes on in their own backyard. Mm-hmm. In the summer of 2019, we had 200 athletes from over 28 countries come race oh in D-Town. And the experience of the New Zealand team racing a Kieran, the Kieran final at full speed is something that you can only understand if you're there to experience Mm -hmm. in person and so that's the thing that I think people don't appreciate is just the sheer level of high performance athletics that happens very quietly in their own backyard. So you just mentioned how teams like New Zealand had come to the Lehigh Valley Velodrome to race in the Kieran race. So I know that Friday night races are one of the races that most people come from all over to participate in. So could you give our listeners a few examples of some places these racers come from? Uh, Absolutely. So What's important to understand is that there's different levels of the sport. And for about a month every year at T-Town, we host international racing, which means the athletes who participate get very valuable points for both themselves and their national racing federations that qualify them for events like the World Championships and then ultimately in for the Olympic Games. And these points are really important, like incredibly important to, to qualify space in the Olympics, which for track cycling is the absolute pinnacle of the sport. Mm-hmm. So we offer international racing points at the track. 
And we are the only track in the world that offers an entire month of these international racing opportunities. So we attract athletes. Let's see. It's a long list. So let me give you an example. UK, Canada, Colombia, Argentina, Venezuela, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Thailand, uh, South Africa. We had Russian athletes. We had Austria, France, Italy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) Wow. 28 countries. I mean, big and small nations. Uh, Mexico, yeah, I'm, I, I can't even remember the entire list, but it was over 28 countries, all because, um, Barbados, um, all because these points that are on offer are so valuable in the sport to go to the games that people will come here for an entire month, if not longer, to race and train and get these points that they need in hopes of chasing that Olympic dream. That is truly incredible. What do you think is probably the coolest thing about your job? The teen culture revolves around being able to flex on other people. So which basically means to show off about something. So what do you think is your is the flex from your job? <laughs> um, I, I think that that's a question asked by somebody who doesn't know how unglamorous putting on bike racing is. <laughs> I, the closest thing I can say is that when I was interviewing for the job, one of the pre- people interviewing me said, you know, Trexler Town is like Yankee Stadium. What would it mean to you to be the executive director of Yankee Stadium? And as a Red Sox fan, I said, well, I'd, I'd rather be the executive director of Fenway. But I think for me, the, the, the closest thing to a flex is that I have an opportunity to, to be executive director at a really iconic venue. Um, it's known worldwide. So that's a pretty big honor. I don't know that it's a flex per se, <laughs> but it is a, it is a real honor for mm. me. So that that would have to be as close as I could come because it's really a, a not a very sexy job. <laughs> <laughs> the national championships were moved from California to Trexler Town on a really short notice. So how did you manage? Speaking of not a sexy job, yeah. Um, so COVID was an impact on the, the velodrome in California, right? It's an indoor velodrome. Mm-hmm. And as we've all learned, indoor gatherings in COVID are potentially less safe than outdoor gatherings. And so... We got the call in May from USA Cycling asking us if we could host the event, which was in July, which doesn't give us a whole lot of time to prepare for a national championships. But we were able to uh, adjust our, our program, our scheduling to accommodate it. I felt it was really important to offer our own community the opportunity to have a national championships. They all trained really hard through 2020 for it. So we wanted to give best opportunity we could for that event to happen. And if it meant bringing it to us and dropping everything else and doing it, we, we were going to do it. But we, again, had really strong support from LVHN and Valley Preferred on how to do it safely. And we worked really closely with the county on how to do things safely. USA Cycling was enormously thankful to us because it was a very last minute pickup and they faced an enormous amount of budgetary cuts themselves in COVID. So they are understaffed. They were very happy to turn it over to us uh, where we do, do have deep track knowledge. So that was it. We just rolled up our sleeves and did it. But we got advice from all of our local partners on how to do it safely. And then we sort of just jumped in and that was it. And it came off really well for an event that had six weeks of lead time. And it's a tremendously important thing for our community to get a shot at taking those national titles. Uh, it's also really important for partners like Discover Lehigh Valley because they are actively always trying to bring events to the Lehigh Valley that create value for the local hoteliers, for the local restaurants. So the more we can contribute to bringing people to the Lehigh Valley, we become an economic driver. And so it's great for the sporting community, but it's also great for the economics of the Lehigh Valley, where we can be a contributing economic driver uh, for bringing events in. Events are, our events are big business for tourism. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where we play. Okay. So in such a short notice of hosting the national championships in Trexler Town, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced? Just time to prepare, you know, getting registration up and running, getting schedules approved, adjusting schedules from a 250-meter track to a 333-meter track. All of it's weird minutia that people would never think about, Mm -hmm. Um, but it all takes funding. So, you know, you have to coordinate people coming into the infield. You have to coordinate sponsorships. You have to coordinate travel for officials. You have to figure out where your officials are coming from. There's a whole host of things that people really don't ever contemplate 
they just think events sort of spring whole cloth out of a box, but it's staffing, it's finding medical support, it's just, you know, staffing the bartenders for the nighttime sessions, it's setting up the tickets for sale, it's setting up like I said before, registration for people to enter. It's developing pricing structures with USA Cycling. It's all of those things that events do, but with no time for a marketing plan. I mean, it was essentially execute. You know, mm-hmm. here's here's this thing, execute on it. Uh, so we didn't have a lot of lead time to do things like big promotional plans or, or marketing efforts. Um, it was finding hotel partners. Um, Discoverly High Valley was enormously helpful with, you know, as as uh, an asset for us to do that, just finding places for people to stay that we could afford to pay for, right? Where do the officials stay? Well, you know, it's all it's all of those types of things that people don't really consider with event production that we did in a really compressed timeline. Getting a little more into the actual sport itself, a lot of people, when they see pictures of track cyclists, they're wearing fancy helmets, different unique wheels, cool bikes. So Could you explain what difference these actually make to the sport? Yes, I can try. Uh, You you might actually be better at this than I am. (laughs) Track cycling is a discipline of fractions. Um, So... In cycling, there's the the term marginal gains is tossed around an awful lot. But every piece of equipment in track cycling matters when races are won and lost by tenths of a second, right? Fractions, hundredths Mm -hmm. of of a second. So... The bikes are made of carbon fiber. The The wheels are optimized for aerodynamics, so airflow over the wheels. Uh, the helmets, same thing. They're shaped for aerodynamics, right down to the socks. So people would wear a Lycra socks with ribs on it, which was a big bone of contention at the Olympics, by the way. The, the, Dan- the Danish cycling team was caught putting KT tape up their their shin bones uh, for an aerodynamic advantage. And people were like, well, is that skirting the rules? So all of this equipment, all of this technology is exceedingly cutting edge technology in cycling uh, designed for really capturing hundredths of tenths of seconds. If you look at the bikes that GB, Team Great Britain, rode in this Olympics, they were developed in partnership with Lotus, which is the, the car racing company. And every four years you see in track cycling, the bikes that these companies have been working on for a full quad that they bring out in pursuit of just these minute, minute time gains. But if you look at something like the time, was it the men's team pursuit or the women's team pursuit? I think the women's team pursuit Best, the German team bested the world record three times over and ultimately lowered the world record time from Rio by something like six minutes. Humans only have a capacity to go so much further, right? We're not engineering ourselves. Mm-hmm. So part of that, that just phenomenal gain in time comes down to your technology. Yeah. So that's why the bikes on the track are just incredibly high-tech for a low-tech bike, right? There's mm-hmm. no brakes, there's no gears. So it's not that you have the most sophisticated shifting system. Yeah. It's all in the aerodynamics and that's every aspect of it. The socks, the skin suits, the wheels, the tire choice, the lube on the chains. Team Great Britain became you know, a topic of conversation before the games because they started running a narrower chain. Mm-hmm. Everything that you can to optimize. Everything matters. Everything when you're talking hundreds of of a second. Yeah. You'd really think that in like bike races that there'd be a clear winner always. But sometimes from what you just said, it comes down to the hundredth of a second. Yeah, photo finish. I mean, I I like to think of track racing as as the bike racing equivalent of Formula One because Mm -hmm. there's so much technology going into it. Yeah. And certainly that then trickles down to the road, right? We're already hearing that the the Lotus bike from Team GB is going to be offered for a time trial bike on the road. But that technology development really very often starts with track technology and then it gets converted into road technology. Not always, but often. And just to conclude, could you let our listeners know once again where they could learn more about the velodrome? Absolutely. So we are online at thevelodrome.com and you can follow us on all of our social channels. Instagram is where we're the most active, which is also the Velodrome. And we post there pretty regularly. And we're also on Facebook as the Valley Preferred Cycling Center. And just one quick reminder for folks whose curiosity might be piqued now about the track. 
we are going to be closing in September for that resurfacing project. And so the track will be closed from September 20th until spring of 2022, at which point we're going to have a buttery smooth new surface for people to ride bikes on. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Joan. That was all so interesting. All right, listeners, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Galactic Travels brings you hour-long soundscapes of electronic, ambient, and space music. That's Thursday night at 11, right here on WDIY Allentown, Lehigh Valley Public Radio, 88.1 FM and WDIY.org. Many choices, real voices. Welcome back to Teen Connect. This is your host, Suthanth Kandelwal, and now I'd like to bring up the ever-growing topic of organic farming. Organic farming is a revolutionary method of growing food without the use of synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. To learn more about this captivating subject, we have none other than the CEO of Rodale Institute himself, Mr. Jeff Moyer. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Mr. Moyer. Oh, it's a great pleasure to spend some time with you, and I look forward to our conversation. So before we start, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Sure. As you already mentioned, my name is Jeff Moyer, and I am the currently the CEO of Rodale Institute. I've been a staff member of Rodale Institute for several decades now. Uh, my original work was in was being a farm director and working with our research team. So I have some novel research of my own working with cover crops, uh, but for the last six years have been the CEO of our institution. Uh, the Rodale Institute is a nonprofit that works in the area of uh, research and education around organic agriculture. So exciting to, to be part of this conversation. A lot of people don't know about the Institute and the great work it does. So could you let our listeners know about what goes on at the Rodale Institute? Sure, I certainly will try to do that. Uh, Rodale Institute uh, is a 501c3 nonprofit. We work in several different locations uh, in Pennsylvania and also around the country. We have a research facility in Ventura, California. We have one just south of Atlanta in Georgia, and we have one in uh, upstate Iowa. We also have a research facility up in the Poconos, working with Pocono Organics. And we have a farm at the St. Luke's Hospital Center at their Anderson campus, and we are just opening up a farm at the uh, Cornwall Manor Retirement Community in Lebanon County. We have a farm on Cedarcrest Boulevard in Allentown, Pennsylvania, so we have quite a few sites where we do our work. But our main headquarters, our, our main campus, is located just outside of Kutztown, Pennsylvania. We are open to the public, and we have a 333-acre site there where uh, most of our staff is housed. We have uh, a team of research scientists that perform novel, innovative work on the ground here. We have a very dynamic education and outreach team that then takes that information and uh, moves it out to the general public. And our communication and marketing team helps to grow the consumer demand for organic products. So we work in many different areas as we try to expand the production and the consumption of organic products uh, across the country and, ar- and around the world. And what I should mention, we're just about to, ready to, and we already officially uh, notified the world that we are launching a research facility in Italy. That will be our first international uh, research station in a few years. We had, uh, for 15 years, we did some work in uh, West Africa and in Guatemala, but now we're working in, in Europe. So very excited about uh, the diversity that we are able to uh, showcase. We have a very diverse and well-thought-out website, so any of your listeners that would be interested in following up on any part of this conversation with Rodale Institute, I encourage them to go to our website at www.rodaleinstitute.org or just uh, whatever browser you use, open it up and just type in Rodale Institute and you'll find us. Oh, wow. That's really cool. So what is Rodale Institute's vision in regards to organic farming and how do you guys set yourselves apart from the other institutes in this field? Well, that's a great question. Thank you. The Rodale Institute is rather unique in that we are a publicly funded, privately owned nonprofit. That means that the work that we do 
is given away. We don't sell it. Uh, we give it away, where, so we're in a very luxurious position to do that. We work with many of the land-grant universities uh, across the country. We work with the USDA. We have two USDA scientists on site here uh, most of the time uh, working on some of our projects. So we're very blessed in that we uh, don't see ourselves as being a competitor with many other folks, but much more uh, cooperative with many other folks as we all work to improve the environment in which we live in and improve the health of people and, and the planet, which is really part of our mission statement. If you have the opportunity to look us up online, you'll see that our mission statements uh, really started back in 1942 when our founder, J.I. Rodale, wrote some words on a blackboard, and he said, healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. Uh, since that point in time, we have added healthy planet because, of course, in 1942, people weren't uh, as concerned about uh, climate change or planetary health, uh, and, and now we are. But all of that uh, and the healing of people on the planet stems from the way we manage our agricultural soils. And so we talk about soil health an awful lot. And that's how we work with other universities and research facilities as we look at how can we farm, produce all the food that we need as a, for a growing population and global population, and still uh, improve the health of our soil while we do it. Oh, okay. In your time there, what do you think has been the most significant change at Rodale Institute? Well, of course, we've grown a lot over the last uh, 45 years that I've been here. Uh, uh, but I think what's really important, not just our growth, but the impact that we've been able to have on people in the planet. For example, almost every land-grant university in the nation today, uh, and that's part of our uh, federally-sponsored university system focused on agricultural production, those land-grant universities almost all now have some organic research where, of course, 40 years ago, they weren't too interested in that. And what's really creating that demand is farmers' interest in changing the way they produce food, and that's governed by consumer demand. So there isn't a, a, a person in this country that hasn't at least heard of organic food today. And we know statistically 82% of the population of the United States has purchased some organic product in the last 30 days. So we know consumers are demanding that product. We know there's growth in the marketplace. And that's really the big change over the last few years is, is how much the consuming public has kind of woke up to the idea that the way we produce food can have a very positive or negative impact on their personal health and the health of the planet. For listeners who don't currently buy organic foods, could you explain the benefit of organic farming? Well, sure. The benefits of organic farming come in many different forms. Some of them are related to our own personal health. Uh, we know that taking agricultural pesticides as residue on some of our food products into our bodies is not particularly good. So if we eat uh, organic food, we know that those products uh, that are used in conventional agriculture are something other than organic, would not be uh, would not be there. So we can remove the, the chemicals from our food system, which can have a very positive benefit on our personal health. We also know that if we're not using those types of chemicals in our food production systems, they don't end up in our waterways or in our groundwater. So we know we're not going to drink them. We know they're not going to be in the surface water where they can be detrimental to fish or, or animal life or marine life that's living in the in, in, in aquatic life that's living in the waterways. And so we can improve the health of our soil, we can improve the health of our water systems, we can improve the health of people and farmers. You know, uh, farmers are the ones that are out in the front lines uh, often uh, applying these materials to our uh, ag areas. And, and we want to make sure that we are socially just in the way we treat farm workers and, and what our expectations are for their work environment. So there's many benefits to changing the way we produce food. We're not suggesting we don't produce food or that we take a step backwards. We're really looking at organic agriculture as a very modern, state-of-the-art food production system that takes advantage of all the modern science that's out there. We simply don't use tools or products that were developed for ag production that don't help improve the health of people or the planet. So, for example, my job as a farmer is not to kill weeds. It's to produce food that makes people healthy. Well, there is no mechanism by which nature or the soil takes pesticides and makes people healthy with that. 
that science doesn't exist. So we say we're not going to use those tools because they don't really help us meet our end goal of making people or the planet healthy. So generally to most people, though, when shopping in a grocery store, organic fruits and vegetables are more expensive than the ones that aren't organic. So do you think the benefit of organic foods outweighs the extra price people need to pay for it? Yeah, for some products, there are price differentials between organic and conventional. And the reason for that isn't that organic costs too much. It's that much of our conventional food product is subsidized where the costs are externalized to keep the price artificially low at the point of purchase. So when you purchase an organic food product, you're paying for the true cost of the production of that food. Whereas when you're paying a conventional price, Uh, for buying conventionally produced food, you are not paying the true cost of that food production at the point of purchase. Many of the costs that are embodied in that production model have been externalized to artificially keep the price low. Now, if we're interested in, in growing the organic marketplace, we have to look at some tools that will help pull the costs down. And there are tools that are available to us. So for example, scale has something to do with it. If I'm trucking one truckload of vegetables from my farm to a distribution site, and there's only one box on the truck, there's a cost to that. But if I can scale up and put 30 boxes on that truck, the cost of delivery is still the same. So I can reduce some of the costs in that production model. And you've seen some of that happen with some of the larger retailers like Costco or Walmart, where they've worked with farmers and and food processors to help pull that margin closer together and still be able to uh, pay the farmers a fair representation of value for the type of food that they're producing. The other thing we can do is some things that we've done here at Rodeo Institute, where we've worked with financially challenged peoples in our regional community here, Reading and Allentown area, where we have a mobile food market that takes food out into underprivileged areas and markets them to people who would not ordinarily have the ability to get those products. And they can pay for those food products or that, that produce with their SNAP dollars or their basically their food stamps. And by working with the state of Pennsylvania, we've been able to uh, create what we call double snap. So folks really get the uh, twice as much food for the same price, or they get it at half price, depending how you look at it. But really, we've, we've cut the price of that product in half and still allow the farmers who are producing it to get paid for the work that they're doing that is protecting our health and the health of the environment and still supply products to the customer at a price point that they can afford. So some of these benefits you mentioned earlier, how can people incorporate some of these in their homes? And are there any tips you might want to give our listeners? Sure. I mean, the first, obviously, uh, and we've already been talking about that, is shop with an eye towards organic products. And if you can't fill your grocery cart or your shopping bag with 100% organic, look for those food products that maybe uh, are are the most uh, important or relevant to those who are consuming it. So for example, we know that milk, organic milk, is one of the the entry points for many customers into the organic marketplace because their children drink a lot of milk and they say, I, you know, I want to get my children off to a really healthy start and make sure that none of those um, production byproducts would be found in the milk. So they choose organic milk. Another area would be fruits and vegetables, where we know that there is a a high propensity of residue from the production model still part of the the food product, and you can't wash everything off. And so a lot of consumers are saying, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables is an area where I might begin my purchasing uh, Mm -hmm. paradigm. And then we also look at some things like... uh, potatoes or something that's grown in the soil where you know it's come in contact with uh, salt-based fertilizers or pesticides uh, while it's sitting in the soil. That's another area where people say that's a starting point. Carrots would be another example. Carrots are a great example because we have, you can see in the marketplace where organic carrots are really at the same price point as conventional carrots because the large-scale carrot producers uh, throughout the western states have really come up with production models whereby they can drive the cost down and be very competitive with the conventional carrots. The other thing that we would suggest is that 
People look around their homes and see what can I do in my garden at home to reduce the pesticide load on those food products that I might be growing. And there's, there's a lot of things you can do. And we, again, I would suggest you look at our website and uh, tool up on some of those gardening techniques that will allow you to garden at home without having to go out and purchase chemicals and either have them in your home where they may not be safe for younger children or even apply them yourself where safety concerns might be an issue. So I have a bit of a personal question for you. Did you have any idea this is what you would be doing when you were a kid? And how did you end up working for a nonprofit organization like the Rodale Institute? Well, that's that's a great question. And, uh, and of course, I don't think anybody uh, ends up at the tail end of their career where I'm at, (laughs) thinking that that's where they were going to start at the beginning of their career. Uh, I grew up, and and some of your listeners may... uh, just south of Emmaus, a little town of Zionsville, and grew up there on a, on a small uh, patch of land that my father owned, and um, it was mostly woodland, and I really enjoyed being in the woods and in the forest, and so when I went to college, I went to school for forestry. When I got out of college, uh, the only jobs I could find were in the western states, and my girlfriend at the time was from Pennsylvania and did not want to leave the state of Pennsylvania. We uh, I've been blessed to be married for 44 years, so it all worked out fine, but I did not uh, pursue my career in forestry. Instead, I got involved in agriculture and uh, got a job early on in my career at Rodale Institute and just fell in love with the work, the people, and the mission of, of what Rodale Institute stands for and have been fortunate to have been able to spend my entire career here working with some of the most wonderful people uh, on the planet as they work diligently, either in conventional or organic systems, to produce food for all of us. So I know some teens who are like currently my age, around 16-ish, who also have a similar interest in this field, but don't really know how to get involved. So are there any volunteering opportunities for teens at Rodale Institute to follow this interest of theirs? Oh, uh, great. Thanks for bringing that up, Sadat. Yes, of course. Uh, Rodale Institute has a very diverse volunteer program. We have an internship program that people can take advantage of. And again, I would, I, I would invite all of you to either reach out directly by telephone or, or email or uh, look at our website and, and follow the pathways that are very convenient to follow uh, to take advantage of those opportunities. What's really interesting about the organic uh, world is that there's, there's a place for everybody with every skill set to participate. So if your skill set is in writing or journalism, or maybe radio broadcasting, there's an opportunity for you to share that skill and inform people on what they're doing. You don't have to get your hands dirty in the field if that's not your area of interest or expertise. So there's, there's an opportunity from, from marketing to journalism to writing to accounting to uh, economics to, of course, agricultural production models, to the science end, to the production side, to the soil science entomology, wherever your interest lies, there's an opportunity for uh, young people like yourselves to put your interest to work and really make a difference in what's happening in the world around you. Oh, okay. That's cool. So are there any facilities at the Rodale Institute that are open for the general public to make use of? Yes, there are. If you come to the Rodeo Institute, we have a visitor center. Uh, we are open uh, every day during uh, normal business hours. We do have weekend hours uh, for people to come and tour the facility to participate in what we're doing. We do have events. Again, they're scheduled on our website. So we have some annual events, some special events that your listeners can uh, come and enjoy and participate with and participate in. And then you, if you ever come to visit us, you'll notice that there are no gates, there are no fences uh, around the farm, and so people are invited to, to share in the, the lovely uh, environment and atmosphere that we have here at our main headquarters uh, out near Kutztown at the Rodeo Institute. And so I, I would invite and encourage anybody who has an interest in what we're talking about here today to take a little time and come out and visit us. We'd love to, love to see you here. So I've heard that organic growing uses more land, and wouldn't that be worse for the environment? Well, it would be if it were true, but it's not necessarily true. If you look at what we do and how we produce food in this country and how we produce uh, and what we produce as food, you will see that we tend to waste a lot of real estate growing things that we don't really need. For example, close to 40% of the corn that we produce in this country goes for ethanol. 
it's not going into our food or even our fiber fields. Oh. Uh, many, many of the production models that we use are in the conventional world are set up to, produ- to um, satisfy the subsidized model that has been created to keep it in place. So farmers try to protect their corn and soybean acres because that's where they get the government subsidies through their uh, crop insurance programs or whatever it might be. So anybody that pays taxes, whether it's you or your parents or your grandparents, uh, you're buying crop insurance. Most people don't realize that. Uh, that's a, We have a subsidized crop insurance program in this country as part of our U.S. Farm Bill because we know Farmers can't afford their own crop insurance because we're so sure that our conventional models are going to fail that we have to subsidize the insurance program because farmers couldn't afford to pay for it on their own. But those are the kind of statements that aren't really broadcast and people don't know too much about them. You really have to be involved and get into the details. So it's much easier for people to say, oh, well, the yields are lower in some organic crops, and that's true, and so we're going to need more land to make up the difference. That's not true. The statements are different. You know, it's kind of if you, funny if you look at the statistics on how much food is lost to pests today with chemical systems versus what was lost 50 years ago without those production tools in place, we see that it's about the same. We're still losing a lot of product to pest damage, to uh, waste about 50% of the food that we grow in this country is actually wasted, either lost at the field harvesting season due to damage or uh, all the way through the, the food uh, production model and, and supply chain up until the point where people literally throw it away out of their refrigerator after they bought it. And I think all of us can uh, have a mental picture of what that uh, rotting lettuce looks like in the back of the vegetable drawer. So that, that at one time was the, the premium product that had already been gleaned and winnowed down through the whole supply chain to bring it to your kitchen. So when you look at that entire waste stream, about 50% of the food we produce is actually wasted. So there's a lot of places where we could make improvements in the production models with the science, with a waste management, with changing what we're growing, how we're growing it, so that we know that we can produce all of the calories, all of the food that an expanding world population needs on the same land, or in some cases, less oh, within orga- with, yeah. with organics. So. Mm-hmm. As you previously stated in this past question, that there's this misconception of organic growing being worse for the environment. So while you're here with us today, are there any misconceptions you'd want to clear up for our listeners? Well, sure. Uh, You know, those people who are really interested in digging deeper, literally, will hear statements that, well, organic systems take more tillage. That means that we're going out and and, uh, tilling the soil to plant our crops. And tilling is bad for soil health and bad for the environment, causes erosion. And that can be true, but it's not a real complete story. Because in organic farming, we till at different times of the year, and we plant cover crops to mitigate any tillage that we uh, that we do. So people don't always hear the complete story. They just say, oh, organic farmers till more. And tilling, you know, picture yourself as an earthworm. Tillage day is not a particularly good day. But if you mitigate that damage by tilling at a certain time of the year, like uh, August, for example, the month that we're in, all of those earthworms are very deep down in the soil. They're not up near the surface because the surface is very dry and warm, and they want to be down where it's cool and damp. So tillage does not impact earthworms at all. But we don't, you know, there's some misconceptions out there that people don't get. Mm-hmm. Another misconception is, and we already talked about it, is that organic food costs more. We don't talk about the nutrient density of organic food and how it is better for you, and so you're getting a better value for your dollar not a lot of empty calories. It's more nutritious calories. So you don't have to eat as much of it to get the same amount of calories. For example, uh, if you ate an apple in 1960 and you looked at the amount of iron that was in that apple, today you would have to eat 26 apples to get the same amount of iron. Well, nobody can sit down and eat 26 apples. That's just uh, ridiculous. So you're not getting the full benefit of that iron. But those are things we don't really talk about because it's, you know, nobody wants to think that they're buying a product that is deficient of nutrients, but the reality is that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Now, here at at Romeo Institute, we dig deeper and look far beyond the mineral content or the vitamin content of food, and we start to look at things like polyphenols and antioxidants and amino acids like ergothionine. That's a word that many of your listeners, probably most of them, never even heard of. 
But ergothionine is the most powerful anti-inflammatory material known to man. It was discovered in 1907 as scientists were looking at what was happening in in the profile of amino acids, but nobody really knew what it did. Turns out that ergothionine is only produced by soil funguses and certain mushrooms, but those soil funguses that produce the ergothionine can be destroyed by the application of salt-based fertilizers and chemicals. Ergothionine is being reduced in our diet, and at the same time, ergothionine helps your body prevent certain neurological disorders like attention deficit disorder, autism, and Alzheimer's, all of which we know are on the rise in our populations. Can that be connected to ergothionine? Well, we're doing work at Rodale Institute in conjunction with Penn State University to help identify that. Because if that's true, then we know that the soil health is improving our health and things that we can do to improve ergothionine levels in the soil. How do we encourage more soil funguses? That can improve our health. So those are the kinds of misconceptions that we don't always hear about and don't think about. And so I would encourage all of your listeners to just literally dig a little deeper into the science and into the backstory to get their facts really straight so they can make a very informed decision on what's important to their family, their personal health, and of course all of us are concerned with the health of the planet and and climate change. Are there any programs Rodale Institute runs to inform and teach people about things like like you just said, so to help them dig deeper into the subject and find out more? We do. We have some very active educational opportunities on our website that we encourage people to take advantage of. If you happen to be locally, you can literally come and take our classes uh, here. Uh, I believe most of them are on weekends, but you can look those up and find out where they are. And that goes everything from beekeeping to gardening to the kinds of things that uh, your listeners might be able to put to work and taking advantage of right away in their own backyard or in their own personal life. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there. If there's something that people want uh, information that they can't find, send us an email. Uh, we have a uh, on our website, there's an info at button. You push that, ask a question, and one of our scientists, I can't say they'll do it within a day or two, but they will do their very best to get the answers to your questions to you. So a lot of opportunities there. Most of them, of course, like everything today, link through our website. And so I would encourage all of your listeners to uh, spend a little time at our website, and I think they'll learn a lot. Wow. So as the Rodale Institute continues to dig deeper into this field, what would you say is the goal, the main goal of the Rodale Institute? Well, when you boil it all down, our goal is to transition farms and farmers from conventional production to organic, because we know if we can change the way we produce food, we can change the health of people and the health of the planet. We're really interested in changing the health of people and the planet. We see ourselves very much as a a human health organization and a a climatology uh, institution, but we do all of our work at the soil health level, because that's when you keep going uh, upstream, that's where we can have the greatest impact as individuals and as a species on, uh, on, again, on our health and on the health of the planet. So, yeah, transitioning farms and farmers from conventional to organic. We have a new, a new uh, we also work with many other partners uh, in the business world. And one of the things that we've created is a new certification standard that is called Regenerative Organic certification or ROC, R-O-C. And that's a new label that people will begin to see in the supermarket as we encourage farmers to move uh, beyond just looking at the production model of the food, but also how we're improving the health of the soil, how we're, there's a social justice pillar that's connected with that standard. So how are we taking care of the farmers, not just in this country, but all across the globe that are producing much of the food we eat? Because not everything we eat comes from Pennsylvania or the Lehigh Valley, or even the United States comes from all over the world. And we're blessed and fortunate to enjoy that kind of very diverse uh, supply chain. But we also have a responsibility to make sure that the individuals involved in that supply chain are treated fairly as well. So very complex standard. Again, I would encourage people to look up regenerative organic certification on the website. You'll get more information than you could ever imagine. So in pursuit of this higher goal of transitioning conventional farming to organic farming, does the Institute collaborate or have partnerships with any other organizations in the country or the world? 
Of course, we pride ourselves on being great partners. We can't. We have probably about. Uh, it's changing almost daily as we're hiring more people. But we have about eighty uh, full-time staff people at the institute. Even with that number of people, to say you're going to change the world with eighty people is challenging. We know we need partnerships to do that. So we have partnerships with many uh, other nonprofits. We have partnerships with many foundations uh, who could be funding uh, partners or support partners for our nonprofit. We actually have production or or work relationships with many uh, industries, uh, the food industry, the fiber industry, and of course, as I already mentioned, many other universities and places of higher education and academia where we work in partnership with their scientists to move the science further and faster. And then, uh, you know, we also have partnerships with policymakers. So we have partnerships with this Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture. We have partnerships with many of the legislators in Harrisburg and in uh, Washington, D.C., as we work to create policy that supports the kind of mechanisms of production that that we espouse. So we we have partnerships and work on partnerships and relationships on a daily basis. And we'd probably love to have partnerships with many of your listeners. And uh, we would encourage them, again, to reach out and find out how they might become partners in our work. Wow. After listening to you here today, I think everyone will feel much more inclined to take an initiative in regards to organic farming. And I want to thank you so much for talking with us here today, Mr. Moyer. Well, it's been a great honor, privilege, and a pleasure to spend some time with you personally and hopefully with all your listeners. I hope they got something out of it. And thank you so much to our wonderful listeners for tuning in today. This is your host, Hans Kandelwal, and I'll see you next time on Teen Connect.